Father, we again thank you uh, for your grace and your mercy upon our lives. And as we gather here in your name, we lift your name on high because we come here to hear from you, to learn from you, to change our lives to be changed by you, by your spirit doing a work in our lives. May there not be any hindrance whatsoever for the Holy Spirit to speak to each individual heart today. And I pray that our ears will be open spiritually, our hearts softened spiritually to receive your truth. We thank you and praise you for this day, the gathering of your people, that you would just be a blessing to you. Father, as we open up your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 2 we pick back up where we left off with verse 4. Today we will see in verses 4 through 9, Peter gave several illustrations to demonstrate both the Lord's judgment and his deliverance, his justice and his grace. Now we will see three examples of punishment that Peter will highlight in regards to making his point there in verse 3. Actually, verses 1 through 3. We see in those verses 1 through 3 that said that, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there were, will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who, brought, who bought them with his own blood. They're going to deny who he is and what he has done for them. And that bringing on themselves swift destruction. So Peter is letting them know, yes, you're watching these false teachers, these false prophets come in and cause havoc among God's people. Have you been online recently? Have you watched some of these television things recently? It's insanity to me that people would follow these false prophets and false teachers and the reason is, is because their ears are being tickled. They want to hear what they have to offer and what they're peddling. And so they, of course, are listening to it. And we have to pray, for, especially for us and for the, as, against those things, that we would know the word of God and we would, we would sniff out these false prophets and these false teachers and we would go, that is strange teaching. Because we know the word. And then it drops down. It's like, and he encourages us, Peter does, and the people. Then he says, but it's my covetousness. They're exploiting you. <laughs> they're, they're, they're using deceptive words. But understand, even though they seem their judgment is, it, it has not been idle. It seems like nothing's happening to them. No, God is not revealing these people of what, who they are. Why is there so many people following them? And, and destruction, he says, is not slumbered. It, it will not slumber. It's going to come to pass when these people will be judged. And so he gives examples now in verses 4 through 9 to remind them and encourage them at the time and encourages us today, don't worry about them. Just don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Just stay solid in the word of God. Be solid of the teacher you're listening or just Stick with the word of God. Do not go off onto these programs and all these things, these books, and, and, and get deceived. They're just being exploited. They're just fleecing you. 
They're just taking your money for their own purpose and their own gain. They're really not shepherds feeding you. They're not shepherds tending to you. And so we see here in the scripture that, yes, there are going to be three examples of the punishment, verses 4 through 6. And we'll see two deliverances from judgment. We'll see that in verse 5 and 7. A side note, I'm sure as you've studied the scripture, you'll note that verses 4 through 10, the first part of uh, verse 10, is one long sentence. It's one of the longest sentences in the scripture. But it's a single sentence that was, uh, is incredibly impactful to understand from the past how God has dealt with those who would go against him. So here we see Peter demonstrating that God will judge the false teachers and others who sin against him and his word. And we'll see that as we noted in verses 1 through 3. But in these verses, Peter proved that judgment, their demise finally comes, and it will come, no matter how secure the sinner may feel in his teaching. He may feel so secure in what he's doing, and that this is great, and this will go and go and go, and will go one over to the other, will create all kinds of ministries, offshoots of these Paris offshoots and things, but at some point, there's going to, they're going down. Their demise is going to happen, and judgment will come, because he will use these examples to help and encourage uh, the people reading this letter and for us today. So here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, we see the very first example, and he uses the fallen angels as an example. And he says, for if, or since God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So we wish we knew more. Do we not? When we talk about angels and fallen angels, don't we would like to know more about the creation of the angels and the, the fall of Lucifer and his hosts? But most of the details are covered in mystery around angels. Some people will create all kinds of things that are not biblical because there's so much lack of, uh, we would say, lack of details of, about how and why God created angels. But many Bible students believe in Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15, describes the fall of Lucifer, also referred to as Daystar, the highest of, of all the angels. Some students feel that Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, also deals with the same topic of these angels. And it would appear that Lucifer was God's kind of deputy, right-hand person, in charge of the angelic host, the worship leader leading the worship of God. But this, in his pride, made him strive after the very throne of God. He wasn't content with what God had created for and purpose and place. He wanted more. He wanted control. He actually wanted the throne of God. He wanted to be worshipped. He didn't want to just worship. He wanted to be worshipped. He didn't want to follow. He wanted to be followed. And that's always a sign, even of false teachers and false prophets, those who desire that people would follow them. That is a heart of someone who's not right with God. 
Just notice that. Why aren't you following me? Why don't you buy my book? Why aren't we getting more? People need to come hear me. They need, I'm here for them to come hear me. Those subtle, subtle little things and side conversations tell you the heart of that person and what they're thinking. Just be note. Take note of these things. It would appear that Lucifer was obviously God's, very involved in God's purpose and a plan. But in Revelation 12, 4 suggests that perhaps when he chose to want to be, be worshipped and followed and to, to be on the throne, that one-third of the angels fell with Lucifer, who became Satan, the adversary of God. So the question is, is where are the fallen angels now? We know that Satan is free. Have you been messed with him recently? We know that not only Satan's free, but his, many of his hosts, these one-third of the hosts of uh, angels, whatever that, that amount is, has been messing with you and me and with the church body ever since. So they're free. They're not locked up right now. That he has an army of demonic powers assisting him. We see that even a reference in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 12. But... These are probably many of these fallen angels, but they're not locked up as Peter's talking about being delivered and cast down to hell. Now, this word, word, the word here, hell, means uh, Tartarus. It does not mean Hades, and it's not Gehenna, which is the lake of fire. It's Tartarus. It means, in the Greek, the underworld, wherever that underworld is. The question is in the center of the earth, and there's no bottom. Everywhere you, what direction you look is always up. It's at the center. It's the underworld. Wherever this is, that's where Peter is talking about these, these, these angels, whoever they are, were cast to this place. The buso is also referred to this place they're locked up. Why? so that they can't do anything until when God determines for his purpose and plan at the very end, which we will talk about in the tribulation time. But ultimately, we know they're going to be locked up in the lake of fire, into Gehenna. That's what God created for them. But they're there now, as Peter says, they're locked into chains of darkness. Not literal chains, I believe, but the darkness is so heavy and so restrictive that they feel bound. There is no movement. There is no place to go. They're in total darkness. Absence of God. So we see here that this group that he's referring to in, in Tardis or hell, that they're locked up. Now, Peter's saying, if God did not spare the angels who sinned against him, why do you think that some false teacher and some false prophet who goes against God is going to have any chance? God's going to deal with him just like he did with the fallen angels. But false teachers have been deceived. They're in darkness. They don't understand that the fact that God is going to deal with them. And they too will be locked up. Because they go against God. 
Now it's interesting, God judged these wicked angels and setting them in these chains of darkness. And apparently some fallen angels are in bondage while others are unbound and active in on the earth with the demonic power. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13 through 15, it says it very well. It says, the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet released the four angels who are bound at the great river of Euphrates. So that the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Yes, those who were left behind because they didn't want to choose to believe Jesus will be part of that seven-year tribulation. This is one of the events that take place in the tribulation. That four of these angels are released and they wipe out one-third of the population. Think about this. If you think about the one-third of the population, it's somewhere taking Canada, the United States, and all the South America countries and wiping them out by four angels. That's what it means to be going through the tribulation, you understand. It's not going to be great. It's going to be hellish on earth. Yes, four of them are from hell coming out to do what God is going to use them to do. Why? It says right in the scriptures in, in Revelation 9. What does it say? Who have had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. There's a very specific time God is going to do this. But as a believer, you and I, we're not going to be here. We're going to be in heaven. We'll talk about that more. I think I heard an amen. Everyone say amen so I can hear that. This takes place during that great tribulation, which we're not going to be part of, but it talks about, here Peter's referring to, the prophecy of what will be fulfilled. But they were cast down to hell and delivered into these chains by not keeping their proper place of what God has designed them to do, to follow Him, to worship Him. And because they did not want to worship Him and follow Him, they wanted to do their thing, they were locked up in these chains. Their sinful pursuit of freedom put them in bondage. Do you understand that? Those who insist on freedom to live their life however they want to do actually brings you into bondage, not freedom. True freedom comes from obedience to God. That's what frees you. The angels are apparently a prison of custody between the time of judgment and their ultimate consignment to the eternal lake of fire, Gehenna. Now there will be no future trial for them. Their demise has already been settled. It's already been sealed. And they know it. It is not necessary to debate the hidden mysteries of this verse or any verses around angels in order to get the main point. 
The main point of what Peter is saying to the believers there reading this letter is God judges rebellion. He judges rebellion and will not spare those who reject his will and his truth. Go back and even see Jude verses 5 through 8. That is also noted. Because false prophets and false teachers, Peter states their demise will be the same judgment as the rebellious angels. No question about it. Now he moves on to the second example, and he addresses the old wicked world. We see it here, it says, and he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So here we see that this God will God judge the ancient world. Prior to the flood, he had to bring the flood to deal with the people on that earth because they were so wicked. We see that noted there in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, which says that Noah's flood, because the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. Man and woman's heart was constantly pondering on the things wicked, things that go against the word of God, against God's, even his nature. It's constant, pumping into their head, watching and listening and hearing and pondering and contemplating and doing and actions and acts and things in their life are constantly things that are going against the word of God. This was happening in this ancient time. So what did God have to do because the world was so wicked? They were self-imploding, there was self-destruction. And it was out of his mercy. He raised up a man named Noah to preach the righteousness so that they could turn from their wickedness. God made a way, he said to this man, you're going to build, you're gonna be a shipbuilder. What is a shipbuilder? It's going to be this big structure that's going to hold all of those who choose to follow me and animals. And I'm going to tell you exactly how to build it. Remember, they never saw rain at this point. They didn't understand what this was for. All they did was he was obedient to doing what God told them to do down to their very measurement. Now think about this. You're called by God directly to do a work for him that seems so crazy to everyone else around you. So we see in this example that the world was so depraved, so twisted, so corrupted that it was beyond redemption. It was washed up. God waited 120 years before he set the flood in place. 120 years. To put it out of its misery that was happening, that was self-destructing. Peter was impacted by this true event because if it's so significant to him, he actually quotes or references the flood and on mankind three times just in his first and second Peter letters. 
And it's interesting, after 120 years of building this ark, only Noah and his wife and three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives chose to believe and had faith in God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. And they entered the ark. And then God closed the door to the ark. Everyone else in the world mocked this man. Ridiculed this man. They did not listen to what he was preaching to them about the fact that there was going to be a destruction to this world called the flood. And that for you to be saved, you must trust God and you must come into the ark. They refused to listen at their own demise. Noah was a righteous man, we see in Genesis 6, 9. An obedient servant of God. A shipbuilder for God that he called him a purpose for his life. Peter also noted that Noah was a preacher and he ministered as a herald of God's righteousness. He spoke out against the wickedness all around him. The rest of the world did not believe and nobody believed Noah's message. And they settled their demise and they were all wiped out. Jesus made it clear that people were enjoying their normal lives during this period of time. They enjoyed their normal lives up to the very day that Noah had his family enter the ark. We see that in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. No doubt there were plenty of experts who laughed and mocked at Noah and even assured the people, don't listen to Noah. He's a crazy man. Don't even listen to him. Listen, just enjoy life. It's, it's not, nothing going to happen. We're just having a great time. But once that door was shut, the rainstorm, the rain started coming. They said to people, the rainstorm is not real. It's not coming. They're crazy. This righteous man was off his rocker. He's wasting his time. And they were so sure because they were the experts. They were the professors. Those who seemed so sure of themselves. Self-righteous in what they think they know everything. The powerful. The rich. Those who rely upon their own strength and their own resources. And many of us are mocked because our choices in how we live goes completely contrary to the way the world lives. But let me encourage you, my brothers and sisters, like in the days of Noah, people will mock you because you do not get drunk. They'll mock you because you don't do drugs. They mock you because they do not do pornography. They mock you because you don't 
get people out of the way so you can climb the corporate ladder. They mock you because you do not gossip. You don't, you don't, you're constantly not looking to get your own way. That you're protecting your children from this, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life of this world. That you're committed to teaching them the th ways of God. That you take them to church so that they can get around godly people to learn and to be encouraged in their walk and understanding of who God is. We all have faced that. If you're walking according to God's ways, you will be mocked. If you're not mocked, if you're not ridiculed, if you're not looked at strangely, and you're not disinvited from the, the, the orgies and parties that go on around you, then there's something might be wrong that in your walk with God. You need to test all things. Because anyone who's walking for God, the enemy is going to send some demonic-influenced person your way. It's only a matter of time. So we see this happening with Noah, and he's using this incredible ex example, and we see that their unbelief grew in wickedness across the world, resulting in their demise in the flood and bringing judgment for their wickedness. Well, it's interesting, because when you compare the world with Noah's world, our world with Noah's world, there is no difference. There's many parallels. The population was multiplying, Genesis 6.1. The world was filled with great wickedness, Genesis 6.5. Widespread sexual immorality and unnatural practices in sexuality and demonic influences in, even in every aspect of lust. Evil imaginations consumed their minds. Violence was prevalent everywhere. We see that in Revelation 6.11 through 13. Lawlessness abound. Wrong will be right. Right will be wrong. It was prevalent. True believers were a minority and nobody cared about them. They wanted them out of the way. Now, if that doesn't describe today for us, I don't know what else you're looking for. And it was during that setup, that kind of a world, that God said, it's time. The misery has to be taken care of. They're self-destructing. They're taking everyone else down with them. And he made a way. They chose not to take that way. They chose to continue to live life versus following God. But the flood came. The entire population of the world was destroyed. And Jesus even spoke on this in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Peter says here to the believers, these false teachers today really think they can escape God's judgment because of their smooth words and their large followings. Peter says, don't be fooled. It's only a matter of time. In God's timing, they'll have nothing. Their demise is at hand. 
Peter reminds these false teachers God brought a suddenness of judgment in the flood. Peter used the same verb in verse 1 in speaking of the heretics who bring destructions on themselves. It will be so sudden they won't even know what hit them. God does indeed judge those who reject God's truth. It is only a matter of time. The third example we move on to in verse 6 was the smoldering ashes of, a, of some cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. It says here in verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. I like this verse. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, we'll just have to live by, you know, through our own examples. We'll have to make, fail, you know, make mistakes. We'll learn from those. Blah, 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 blah. You know that's not godly thinking, let me tell you. Yes, we will learn through our horrible mistakes of decision making. That is true. But we also know that God gives us examples in the scripture to learn from so that you won't make the same mistake. What would you rather do? Mess your life up and everyone else in your life around you up because of your sinful nature? Or would you like to learn from someone and avoid those same, those destructions? Because it's going to happen to you too, you know. If you do those sins, you're gonna, it's going to happen to you as well. But we see here that the record is given of this whole account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. And God saw the wickedness of the people in these cities so clearly, Genesis 13, 13. But we see here that God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example of judgment. If you, the, if you live like this, it's not the city itself. It's the people within the cities. He sees it in Genesis 18.20. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave. How great? Depravity. God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire is an example of the universal destruction of the ungodly. Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 29. This example God has made for them to be able to see is one of what is going to happen to the ungodly Jude chapter uh, Jude 7. Jesus himself said in Luke 10 verses 10 through 12, for those who reject the truth, God's truth, it will be more tolerable in that day of Sodom. So he's made it very clear this event is real. And it's an example to those who choose not, or to, who rejects God's truth. There's going to be destruction that will come upon their lives. So he's making an example to those who are living ungodly lives. You must change. You can't continue to live ungodly lives and think that you're just going to get away with it. You must change. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You must. 
die yourself and live for him. Allow the penalty of sin that he paid for you on that cross, you to believe and to receive that as your payment of full for the sins of your life. To recognize you're a sinner and it needs to change and you come to a point God reveals himself to you and you say I need Jesus today and the rest of my life I need to follow him and I have to repent meaning I have to turn around and I must walk away from the sins in my life it's a decision that you must make he knocks at the door of everyone's heart he asks for you to invite him into his in your life he never forces himself into your life. But he is so gracious and so faithful to always. He's not going to give up on you. He's already paid the price for your sins on the cross. It's a finished work. Will you choose to believe in that finished work today? That it applies to your life. If you choose to believe. See, these three examples of judgment shows us the important principle that Peter wants to highlight to his readers, to you and I. God wants us to know that through these historical instances of judgment, God judged the angels who sinned so that no one too high or too prominent is escaping judgment. God judged the ancient world before the flood so God doesn't flow from with, with the majority. He doesn't say, oh, the majority's doing this in the world. That's what I'll go with. He doesn't ch choose uh, oh, the majority. You can't justify your sins because that's what everyone else is doing. God doesn't see that. He'll take out the eight. If that's all, there will, uh, that's all who's willing to follow him. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, even with the elite, the prosperous, and all the lifestyle of living it up. That didn't stop God from judgment upon the people. Peter says here, look at the history. See what happens to the angels and to the people and to the communities who manipulated it and exploited it and lust wickedly for themselves. Therefore, the ungodly have no reason to think they can escape God's judgment. Their demise is coming. Judgment is certain. But now we see in verse 7 through 9, the deliverance example. We see that Peter says, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, Lot's always an interesting character to study. We see in the scripture here that Peter already told us about how the Lord delivered Noah and his family out of destruction. We saw that in verse 5. Now he uses and he shows us that the Lord delivered a righteous lot. A man who God called righteous. 
we see that Lot was righteous in God's eyes. Maybe not man's eyes. But in God's eyes, he was righteous. What really matters? What God thinks about us, not what anybody else thinks about us. You do know that. That's why you can solve your issue of, of pleasing others. You can solve that immediately today. Recognize it only matters what God thinks about you. Are you pleasing God? It doesn't matter about if you're pleasing everybody else. You'll never please everybody else. They're not pleasable. So we see here that Peter writes, in God's eyes, he's righteous. Though perhaps was hard for others to see his righteousness. But in his standing before God, he was a justified man. The word righteous occurs three times just in verses 7 and 8, describing Lot. Yet the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah tormented his righteous soul from day to day. Lot's soul was tormented, but he failed to follow through with godly actions and separate himself and his family from this ungodliness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, okay, let's assume he had no other place to go. He wasn't able to move out. He was isolated. He didn't have the money. or he didn't, But we know for a fact that he did have all the money. He was a very wealthy man. He could have gone anywhere. He chose that area. Remember the story? Him and Uncle Abraham, they got too wealthy and too prosperous and too much sheep and uh, shepherds and all those were figuring out, we cannot keep dwelling together. We have to go our separate ways. And Abraham says, you choose Lot. Even though Abraham should have been the one choosing, Abraham knew God was in control of his life and whatever works out, it's going to be best for him. So he says, Lot, you choose. And Lot looked to what looked the best for him. What he could gain the most for himself. He didn't really ask God to what's best for him. He looked for himself. That town looks better. That city. That state. That area. That's more prosperous. Look at all that city. That has all the fun and stuff that's available to us to party all day long and enjoy it. Where's the, what city offers us the most? That's how he was thinking. Not what was best for him and his family to, to, to live a godly life. That was not in his factor. What a word of caution for any of us if God is moving us. We don't choose that we move ourselves and we look to find the best state or city or town based on our own logic and understanding. You need to seek and ask God what he wants and where he wants to place you for his purpose. Then you know you're right. You do it. You and I will mess it all up. Trust me, I had no thought in my process ever to come to New York. Do you know that? Never. I learned never say never. But I'm so thankful that it was God's plan, and I am the, this is the best quality of life we've ever had, is here in the north country of New York. So I know I have this settled in my mind. I've, I've gone down that path before in, in my younger days thinking I can control all that. No, 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 no. God has settled that for me. I just want to teach you from history so you don't make the same mistakes I did early on. 
But anyway, so we sit there and we look at this. This is example of what's going on here. Of Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities, these wicked cities. And he's delivering this righteous man named Lot. Who was oppressed because the filthiness, the lust that was being conducted. He had to hear it. He had to see it. It was everywhere in the cities. He couldn't escape it. Everywhere he looked, it was oppressing him as a righteous, godly man. And when I read that, I said, if you're a righteous man today, if you're a righteous woman today, you should be like Lot. You should be very oppressed in the fact that when you look around, the filth of conduct that you're hearing and seeing all around you is very heavy. I, 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 don't, I have a simple life if you know me. <laughs> I don't entertain myself very much on things of this world. But sometimes I get a glimpse because I happen to be someplace, somewhere, and they turn on a TV and, and I go, oh. And you quickly realize they're showing that on TV and they, yeah, that, 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 the, those kinds of advertisements and things are on TV. And it just sickens my stomach in seconds. Because it's like this, this something is just, just, it just, it's just, just such a, a heavy hit that it just turns your stomach. And it should. I shouldn't see the filth and the lust of the things that goes against God and say, oh, that's okay. It's just the world. There's no big deal. It doesn't affect me. It should affect you. It should affect us. It affected Lot. But it didn't affect him to a point. And my, as we read this, he didn't move his family out. He didn't get out of there. And you'll continue to see this. And you, we don't know all the story. I think the Lord has shown me more to the story. But I'll let you ponder on the scriptures and see what the Lord shows you. But let's follow along and see if you can kind of pick up why I think they struggled. Not getting out of Sodom earlier. But look at this. He's, again, he's a righteous man. He's a justified man. He's, he's, he's got his... It, there's a torment in his soul of what he's seeing. He's, yes, he's not making change for him and his family. But the Lord delivers Lot because of his righteous soul. Yes, God delivered him out of destruction. Because of his righteous soul, the scripture tells us. But he lost everything else because he is too close association with this wicked cities. These twin cities were filled with sexual debauchery and lawlessness reigned everywhere. And he was willing to stay in it. We 
see him at the gate. So he was in the political realm. He was, he was around the political and making decisions of the city. It wasn't like he was sitting in some corner in a little apartment with his family and trying to protect himself. He was involved in the daily operations of the city. And understand, since the law of Moses had not yet been given at this point, the word lawless does cannot refer to a Jewish law. What law is he referring to? He's referring to, as we see in Romans 1, verses 24 through 27, the lawless deeds or lawless acts were ones that were contrary to nature. The, the law of nature, that is what they were going against. The blatant sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities were unnatural sex, sodomy, homosexual behavior, a sin that is clearly condemned in the scripture. These cities were filled with it. I know some of you are going, I was told there was nowhere in the scripture that all of that is sin. Well, I hope you have a pencil. Let me give you the scripture. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. If you don't understand those few words, please come see me. Now, I know you probably won't. Then talk to someone to the left or to the right. I assure you, they will help you explain the English language to you. How about Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27? And I'll only give you three, because I know you can't handle more than three. For those who really want to refuse this truth, I'll give you one more. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Ponder on those if you're struggling in those areas of sin. God's grace is sufficient to change your mind and to change your life and to forgive you of those sins, but you must choose to repent and be set free. But I was born that way. You are born a sinner. And all your sins were paid for on that cross. You must repent of all those sins. And he will forgive you. Because he loves you. You cannot be bewitched. You cannot be deceived any longer. To think you're going to. Because you come to church, you're going to heaven. Doesn't save you. Because you became a part of a church or a member of a church, you got baptized when you're a baby or older, that's going to save you. It doesn't save you. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is going to save you. And that starts by repenting. And believing in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And that he lives and reigns from heaven and desires that relationship with you. If the Lord is speaking to your heart, you need to talk to him in your head and repent and ask for God's mercy and grace and ask him to be your Lord and Savior this day before it's too late. 
before, like Noah, the sudden destruction of your demise takes place. Before we see where God will bring down the fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, upon those cities. See, it's interesting. Why did Lot and his family struggle getting out of the city? Go back and read it. It wasn't like when you have a couple angels show up at your doorstep, don't you think you would have taken note of that and said, God is sending you a message? He's actually sending two of his messengers to come and help you and say, you've got to get out of here. Would you sit there and argue with two of his angels and say, you've got to get out of here. Destruction's happened. And you sit there and say, wait a minute. I still have my spa day. I, I, I still haven't, I haven't got my, I have a hair appointment. I got one more deal to make. I'm about to make my million. I, it can't happen. Even as a grandparent, how about the struggle? Wait, wait, wait. I have one more grandbaby coming. Just wait until the grandbaby's born. Then, no. When God sends a message, you've got to get out. You've got to get out. But the scripture shows us they were struggling, and the angels had to take them by their hands and drag them out of the city, even after being told that God was going to drop fire and brimstone onto the house. The entire cities. Why? We don't know why. Why didn't they rush out? Why is it that when Lot went to his son-in-laws and told his son-in-laws, God is going to destroy, you need to come with us, you've got to get out, that they thought he was joking? They didn't take him serious. You old man, what do you know? Don't you know I googled it already and there's nowhere in there that says that this is going to happen? We've already looked it up. We don't need you to tell us what. So the angels got Lot, his wife, and his two daughters out. It doesn't stop there. Because we see that when they took them out and they got out of the city, immediately and suddenly the fire fell down. Luke 17, verse 28, 28. The fire just fell down upon as they watched the cities turn to ashes. What, what made these people think they were so confident they were safe? Because they were blinded to their own lifestyle and what they believed they wanted versus what God said. God did not spare them, nor will he spare sinners today who willfully reject his truth and deny his son. Yes, Lot was rescued, but not on his merit, not on his goodness, because he was a good man, but because he was a believer and Uncle Abraham had prayed for him, he interceded for his, his uh, nephew Lot that God would spare him. We saw that in Genesis 18. That's why I keep always telling people, 
Pray for those, those your kids and your grandkids and, and your relatives and family. Pray and intercede for them that they will not be dis- destroyed. But Lot lost his testimony to everyone. Mocked by family, even his wife disobeyed God and was killed and turned to a pillar of salt. Josephus, the historian, says that that statue of her there, her body encased in a pillar of salt, was there an eyewitness for a very long time. She obviously became an example to those around there. Ashes of cities, but a woman who disobeyed and turned around because God said, do not turn around. Why did she turn around? Interesting, isn't it? And she died for that and became an example to others. Once you are walking and following God and doing what he's called you to do, do not turn around and go back to the old life. Don't do it. It will cost you. One other side note. It's kind of sad when you think about the man Noah and the, the man Lot. What did they have in common at the end of the what we know of their lives in the scripture? That's grieving, but in common. And that is the impact alcohol had on their lives. For Lot, it brought the Moabites and the Ammonites. Those two tribes came out of those two boys from one of, remember the story that because Lot and his two daughters, his two daughters thought, we're not going to be able to have kids. And there's no one around us to have kids. So they came up with a plan to get dad to drink. And one night, one daughter laid with his de- the dad to get pregnant. And then the other daughter, well, the next night, got dad drunk again and got pregnant. And that's where those two tribes, those two kid boys, turned around and cre- created a whole, the Moabites and the, uh, the Ammonites, And these two are enemies of God that tried to destroy God's people from that point on. What starts in the flesh never turns out well. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the punishment for the day of judgment. So Peter points made here in verses 4 through 9 comes very clear. And I love this because it just, it just resonates, and I hope it does to, you, to me. It did to me. I hope it to you, to you as well. And that is the statement, the Lord knows how. What do I do? Go to God because the Lord knows how. What do we go from here, from our marriage, my career, my life, my kids? What The Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. The Lord knows how to rescue the righteous and to punish the unrighteousness. 
Even as the Lord delivered Lot, he knows how to deliver us from the temptations we face and we, he knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment. We can trust God's deliverance. We can trust God's deliverance of godly for the godly because it is just as certain of his judgment of the ungodly. God will deliver us as believers. No question in the, in the mind. You shouldn't have question in your mind. Because the Lord knows how. We can take great confidence in this. Many times we do not know how, but the Lord knows how. And it's this good principle that you must hold on to in the decision makings of your life and your families. I don't know how, but the Lord knows how. And I need God's perfect will for my life. And so I'm going to trust that he's going to guide me because he knows how. And when you settle that, there's a peace that will come beyond your own understanding. There'll be a, a, a rest that you can rest in him. Because you're allowing him to be Lord of your life. But it's a good principle to remember. See, our present age is not only like the days of Noah, but it's also like the days of Lot. Many believers have abandoned the place of separation from and are compromising with the world. They call themselves a Christian, but they are living like the world. You're no different. The professing churches today are so weak with their testimony because they have walked away from the word of God and they are just like the world. Sinners do not really believe that judgment is coming because they've been told by the church there is no judgment. It's a trick of the enemy. God's people are spiritually weak today as they are and will be delivered from judgment by the grace and the mercy of God, not because you're based on your merit or your goodness. Only because you've surrendered your life to him. God could not judge Sodom until Lot and his family were out of the city. Likewise, in the scripture is clear in my belief based on the scripture that God will not send his wrath on this world until he takes his own people out and home to heaven. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 for God did not appoint us to, to wrath. Let me repeat that again. For God did not appoint us to wrath. His wrath. but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Do you believe that? My brothers and sisters, you must believe that. It's the scripture. It's God's word. It's truth. The unjust have reservations they have reservations made for them. They are reserved for the day of judgment. Their demise is coming. But believers have no such reservation. 
God will deliver us from the very day of judgment and from the very time of God's wrath that when he pours out on this earth. And if you want to see what that looks like, look, read Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. One day soon, soon and very soon, the fire will fall. My question to you today, are you ready to be taken out of here before that fire falls? Are you ready? Oh, my brothers and sisters, I hope you are. 